Today, uh, we are hanging out in uh, the end of Genesis. So as a church, we are reading through the whole Bible. Every two years, we read through the whole Bible. And that looks like maybe one or two chapters that we read every day. And then on Sundays, we kind of look at some of the stuff we've been reading through as a church in the week. If you haven't been doing that and you'd like to join in, our reading plan is over on the welcome desk. uh, Or you can find it on our website on the page called Bible uh, at the top in the menu. You can find it there. Um, And we... uh, wrapped up the story of Genesis this week and we moved into Exodus, but I'm going to leave Exodus for Emma to look at next Sunday when she's preaching. Um, So we're going to kind of round off the story of Genesis. and We've been hanging out in the story of of Joseph. That's how kind of Genesis comes to an end. So if you've got your Bible with you, um, turn to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read the first 28 verses together. I will confess now, this is never a passage that I thought I would preach on when I first read it. Of all the passages we could look at in the story of Joseph, this wasn't the one that I thought, ah, this this will be good. Uh, But I believe that God's word speaks. All of it is amazing and it brings life and hope. And so uh, I'm going to dive into this a little bit this morning, if that's all right. So here we go. Genesis chapter 49 from verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Uh, By the way, let me just uh, clarify what's going on here. So for those of you that don't know and those of you that do know but have forgotten the story of Joseph, uh, Joseph has a dream and a Technicolor dream coat. You remember that, right? Yeah. Okay. And his brothers, they don't like him because of what he shares. And so they throw him down a well. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in a guy's uh, house, a guy called Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife creates this awkward situation, which ends up with uh, Joseph being put into a dungeon, into prison, as low as low can get. Um, And then suddenly, out through circumstances that we'll talk about a bit later, Joseph ends up being exalted from the prison. He ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, ruler of the whole land. Um, And uh, he saves Egypt from a seven-year famine uh, by storing up loads of food the seven years before. Um, And then during the famine, during the seven years of famine, Joseph's brothers... They come down to Egypt uh, and they find him there and they're terrified because they think, gosh, we tried to kill this guy. What's he going to do to us? But he is loving and gracious towards them and he gives them food and he blesses them and he gives them land in Egypt and they come and they live in Egypt and they bring their elderly father, Jacob, also known as Israel, down into the land of Egypt. And this is where we are right now. Jacob's really old, okay? So did you you follow all that, right? That's, in brief, the story of Joseph, all right? Um, And they're in the land of Egypt, and Jacob's really old, and he gathers all of his sons around him, all 12 of them, and says, listen to me, let me tell you what will happen in the days to come. Here we go, verse 2. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. 
Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion crouches and lies down, like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey, nice, lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Still with me? Yeah. Wow, what a mouthful. What a load of blessing. Um, I don't know about you, but if you're Reuben, Simon, and Levi, I feel like you've been hard done by, right? That doesn't feel much like blessing. But we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, let me just pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God that loves and longs to speak to us and that when you speak, there is life, there is beauty, there is peace. And we pray, God, that as we hang out in this passage today, that we would experience some of that, that we would hear your word speaking to our hearts and that the things of your heart would be spoken to ours. Move in this place, we pray, Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. Um, right. I'm going to get back to chapter 49 in just a minute, but I want to talk about something else first. Is that okay? Standard. <laughs> uh, so, um, hands up, if when you were reading the story of Joseph, you noticed all the numbers that kept popping up. Anyone? Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. A few of you. Great. Throughout the, hands up if you read the story of Joseph. 
All right, amazing. Just checking. All right, so throughout the story of Joseph, uh, again and again and again, uh, the, the biblical authors, they use all these numbers. So you would have noticed that the number three popped up a number of times. The number seven popped up a number of times. Remember, there were seven cows in Pharaoh's dream, and the number 10 popped up a number of times. There were 10 donkeys that got sent back to Joseph. There were 10 brothers that came to Egypt, uh, and multiples of those numbers as well. So you'll find that number 70, the number 110, 10, Jacob lived until 110. And, and, and I'm not going to go into all the numbers now, uh, but you guys know that I'm a little bit bonkers about numbers in the Hebrew language. And the, yeah, all right, smiling and nodding, some of you, yeah. A uh, bit bonkers about numbers in the Hebrew language. And that's because in the Hebrew, in the scriptures, numbers are never just about the number. The authors use the number to tell you that something else is going on. So when you see the number three pop up, often it means that God is at work doing something. When you see the number seven pop up, often it's got something to do with God's perfect created order and the entering into of shalom rest. Okay. When you see the number 10 pop up, it's got something to do with God's word and God's speaking. So in Genesis 1, God speaks 10 times. In the Exodus, we see there are the 10 commandments, literally in the Hebrew, the 10 words that get spoken. And so these numbers, they all mean stuff. Now, I'm not expecting you and I didn't at points kind of when I was reading pick out the number and go, oh, okay, that's what this number means here. Sometimes I looked and went, oh, that's interesting. There's a three. There's a three again. There's a seven. There's a 10. There's another 10. There's a 70. And, and I read it and I was like, I don't know why that number's showing up there until I stepped back and I looked at the story as a whole. And I was like, oh, maybe it isn't just about the individual use of all these numbers, but in the story of Joseph, all of these numbers suddenly get used together. Like, so we see these numbers appearing in different stories throughout the Old Testament and throughout the book of Genesis in the beginning. But in the story of Joseph, it's like they all culminate. It's like they all collide. They all clash. It's like, boom, there's a three and a seven and a 10 and another three and a 70. And, a, and it's like, pfft. and all these numbers just show up in the story. And, and that should excite us, right? Because even if we don't understand what all the numbers mean, actually what the author is trying to tell us is there's something of the coming together, of the, of the culmination of the work of God happening in the story of Joseph. Something about all creation, about God being at work, about God's word being spoken is formulating in a whole way in the story of Joseph. And so when we see all these numbers coming together, we're like, boom, let's wake up and pay attention. What is happening in this story? This is a story where God is at work. This is a story where creation is being made anew. This is a story where we're entering into shalom rest, where the promises of God are being fulfilled. And, and, and there's something going on there in this story, in the story of Joseph. And um, for me, I, I, I was thinking about, well, what is going on in the story of Joseph? And I want to do two things with you this morning. Real briefly, I want to do kind of the grand narrative of, of Joseph and something that we see across that. And then I want to zoom in on chapter 49 and talk about some of the detail of what's going on in that story and some of the things that it speaks to us in, in the detail as well. And so the first thing is when we wake up and we pay attention to the story of Joseph, we realize that this isn't just a story about a guy who had a coat and a dream and then ended up in Egypt with his family and a whole load of other people. There's way more going on. It is that story, but it's also a bigger story. The story of Joseph is the story of the whole of the scriptures. It is the story that foreshadows the one who was to come. 
It's the story that foreshadows, it looks towards and points us towards Jesus. I just want to pull out a few similarities for you in case you didn't clock them, but probably many of you have heard this before and that's great. So um, first up, Joseph, he was like the chosen one, wasn't he? Like he was, he was the one that shouldn't have been chosen. At the time, he was the youngest one. He was the runt of the litter, right? In, in the, in the uh, Jewish custom, the eldest one was the chosen one. But he ended up being the chosen one, the one upon whom glory and blessing sat. He wore the coat, right? He's the chosen one. Like Jesus, Jesus was the chosen one. He was one that we would not have expected to have been chosen. The Bible says he had no beauty that we should be attracted to him. And yet, born in the back end of nowhere, in a stable, was the one who would be king. The chosen one, right? Uh, then we see that Joseph was rejected by his family, rejected by his brothers, rejected by those around him. Why? Because he spoke out what God gave him to speak. And we see in the life of Jesus, Jesus is rejected by the people around him because of what he says. Again and again and again in the Gospels, when Jesus speaks, we see that that it, it really irritates and angers the people around him and they plan to kill him. And that's exactly what happened to Joseph. Joseph's brothers, his family, the people around him planned to kill him because of the words that he spoke, because of what God gave him to speak out. And, and so Joseph literally ends up down a pit at rock bottom. And Jesus ends up crucified and down the pit. His life goes down the pit into the deep darkness. He's dead. He dies. But Joseph was raised up and exalted to become ruler over all the land. And Jesus is resurrected from the grave and raised up to become the ruler of all creation. And I love this in the middle of that story where we start to get hints about the the resurrection coming. You get it in Genesis 40 when he's in the pit, he's in the dungeon and, and he has an encounter with two guys. And they have dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams. Do you remember this? The cupbearer and the and the and the uh, the, the baker, and and he says to them, one of them, he says, "In three days, you will be raised up." <laughs> and the other one, he says, "In three days, you will be killed." And do you notice how that one of them is the cupbearer who brings wine to the king, to the pharaoh, and the other is the baker who makes the bread. We've got bread, we've got wine, we've got three days, we've got someone being raised up and someone being conquered. When Jesus was risen from the grave, when his body and the, was broken and his blood was poured out, the bread and the wine, Jesus was raised up to victory and the enemy poof, was conquered and defeated. We see all of that in the story of Joseph. It's all going, look at what God's going to do. This is his plan. Right back here in Genesis, we see the gospel starting to be foretold. The plan of God to bring salvation to all. And and, and that's exactly what happens. Joseph ends up in Egypt and he brings deliverance to a Gentile nation. He brings deliverance to Egypt, to Gentiles. And he invites his family, he brings uh, his own people, his Israelites, into that as well. And and I love this because there's salvation for all in and through what he does. Deliverance for all in and through what he does. And and then right at the end of the story, when Joseph's about to die in, in Genesis 50, he says to them, he gathers his family around him and he says, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be laid to rest with my ancestors. He says, but God will surely come to you and take you up out of this land to a promised land. 
And when he does, take my body with you. Take me with you. Bury me with my ancestors. Don't leave me here in Egypt. So that they're in deliverance, right? Whatever you think of Egypt, this is the place of deliverance right now. They've been delivered and saved and they're there. And at the point he's about to ascend, so to speak, to, 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 to die, he's about to ascend, to disappear from the face of the earth. He says that God will come and take you to the promised land. Even in Genesis 50 is a foreshadowing of the second coming and the ultimate end of the story. We haven't even got to Revelation and it's already here at the end of Genesis what God is going to do. Isn't that amazing? The whole thing is there. It, it, it blows my mind. And, and so, does that excite you? You're like, boom, come on. Joseph is telling us about Jesus. God always knew what he was going to do. And then we're going to zoom in on Genesis 49. Because that's the grand narrative. But I want to show you how in the detail it gets even more amazing. Right? We find the detail of the gospel hidden in the detail of the story of Joseph. And it blows me away. So chapter 49 verse 1 begins by Jacob saying to his sons, let me tell you what will happen. The phrasing that's used in the Hebrew there, the only other places that phrasing gets used is in the prophets. It's prophetic language. This is about something that is to come. This is a prophecy. Jacob is giving a prophecy to his family right now. And he kicks off by talking to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. We're like, boom. Here's something for you about that. The word firstborn or first sign there is, is the word reshith in the Hebrew, reshith. And it means literally first fruits. And the place it gets most commonly used throughout the Bible is in the sacrificial law parts of the scriptures. When they bring their first fruits, their reshith. So bring as an offering your reshith, your first fruits. And it's all about holiness. It's a holiness word. It's about setting something apart for the glory of God. Setting apart something. And what we see here is that Reuben, as the firstborn, was supposed to be set apart. He was supposed to live as the one who was in the image of Jacob. He was supposed to be the one who would inherit, the one who would rule over, the one who would lead his family. This is what the call was on his life, to be holy, to be set apart. But we read in the next verse, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Now, this is linking back to a story earlier on in Genesis when Reuben went and slept with one of his father's concubines. Not a good thing to do. <laughs> and um, what we see is that Reuben engaged in something that was unholy when he was supposed to be holy. He was supposed to be holy. And, and so it tells us this, turbulent is the waters, you will no longer excel. The phrase turbulent is the waters in Hebrew is the phrase pahaz kamayim, pahaz kamayim. And the word pahaz in the Hebrew, it literally means uncontrolled or throffy, okay? And, and so we get this idea here of uncontrolled, throffy, chaotic waters, and it's, it's taking us right back to the start, to Genesis 1 language again. Right back at the beginning, where the waters were, the chaos waters, the, the dark abyss, the deep, dark waters that the Spirit was hovering over, these chaos waters. And, and, and in Reuben, we see an image of the firstborn, the one who should have looked like his father, the one who should have carried the honor and the glory and ruled properly. 
but somehow he's become uncreated. His desire, his passion, his longing, his hunger for power has made him become uncreated and he's become like the chaos waters. And, and, and so it says, hey, all of this is going to be taken from you. Reuben is an image of Adam, of the first human, the first son of God, who through his desire and his hunger to be better, for more power, to be like God, became undone and was removed from the garden, separated from the call on him to be the firstborn, the one who would be the image of God. Oh, it's sad, right? That's the story, and we see it mirrored here with Reuben. So in, in the Jewish culture, what would happen is if the firstborn died or did some ungodly act like Reuben did, then the power and the honor would fall to the secondborn or the thirdborn if the second wasn't worthy. And next, we get the second and thirdborn grouped together. We get Levi and Simeon grouped together. And it tells us this. It tells us that Simeon and Levi are brothers. Well, we know they're brothers. The Bible doesn't just mean they're brothers. All these guys are brothers. It means they're partners in what they do. They've, they've bounded together to do something, okay? They've uh, uh, connected with one another in purpose. And so their brothers connected, and their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not be joined to their assembly, for they have killed men in anger. And we're like, oh, what? The firstborn messed it up. Our hope lied with the second or the third. But no, these guys are partnered together and they're making a mess of it as well. And this is linking back to a story that we saw earlier in Genesis again, when Simeon and Levi went and invaded Shechem and they brutally murdered all the men of Shechem. And, um, and basically, because of this, Jacob says, Ah, oh, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want my household to have anything to do with them. They should not be the ones that, that carry the glory, that rule over my household. They should not have the rights of the firstborn. And so it says that, um, in the Hebrew, the next verse is translated like this, their counsel not let enter my nefesh, which is the Hebrew word for soul, for the, the sum of who I am. Who I am will not rest with them. And then the next line says to their assembly, not let me uh, not let be united my kavod, which is the Hebrew word for glory, weight. So, so I want my glory and who I am to have nothing to do with people like this. It's not going to rest on these people. And, and, and so we end up kind of thinking, man, like, are any of his sons going to be worthy to be the head of his household? To bring the future? Any of them? And, and this mirrors the story of the Bible. We know that Adam fell. So then God worked with Noah. But that story got a bit messed up too. So then God partnered with Abraham. But that story got a bit messed up too. And we see it down the line. Even King David, oh, man after God's own heart, later in the story, completely messes it all up. All of them, men, <laughs> they mess it all up. All of them. Sorry, ladies, on behalf of my people <laughs> again and again and again again and again and again they mess it up and so the same question that we have about the story of Jacob and his sons we have about the story of the Bible and the human race will there ever be one who gets it right will there be one that brings hope that establishes peace that brings the likeness and the kingdom of God to our world and so then we get to Judah. 
from verse 8. I'm just going to spoiler alert and put it out there straight away rather than build it up and drop it on you at the end because I think it's kind of glaringly obvious, right? But Judah is a foreshadow of Jesus. Oh, there is coming one. And he wasn't the first or the second or the third. But down to a point when you least expected it to be, then he came. And it tells us here a few things for you from, from the, the blessing that we see over Judah from verses 8 on. But we see that, that, that Judah will be praised by his brothers. Oh, well, man, that's what happens with Jesus. You, we are the brothers and sisters of Christ. And what have we been doing this morning? Praising him. This is what will happen. There will come one and his brothers will praise him. And that has happened. It tells us that, that Judah, that his hand will be on the neck of his enemies. What that means is that he will be victorious over the enemy. And actually that links us back to Genesis chapter 3 when we read that from the line of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. Like grab it by the neck and cut it off. Like this is what is happening here. We see this fulfilled in the line of Judah. There's going to come one who will be victorious over the enemy. And then it tells us that his father's sons will bow down to him. Now we know that in this context, literally it's talking about his brothers. But actually biblically, there's more going on here. We know that his brothers will praise him, but now his father's sons will bow down to him. Or his father's sons, this is the sons of God. And the sons of God is a phrase in the Bible that is used to talk about the angelic hosts. And we talked about this at the Bible Q&A last week, actually. You can find that online if you want to have a little listen to that. Uh, but the sons of God are the angelic hosts. And we know throughout the scriptures and when we get to Revelation that they are casting their crowns before him, that they are adoring him and bowing down to him. Yes, this is what will happen in Jesus. And then verse 9, oh, this verse. When I read this and I looked into this, I was like, mind blown. All right. So in the English, in the NIV, it reads like this. You're a lion's cub, Judah. And we know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's one of his titles from the book of Revelation. But then it says, um, you return from the prey, my son. So in the Hebrew, it literally translated into English reads like this. From the prey, my son, you return. Okay, that's the wording order in the Hebrew. From the prey, my son, you return. The word prey in Hebrew is teref, teref. And it literally means something that has been torn. Okay, you can see that, can't you? Imagine meat with claws in it, been ripped. Okay, something that has been torn. So from the something that has been torn, my son, you return. Return, the word in Hebrew is the word olor, olor. And it can be translated return, but most often it's translated as to ascend or to rise. Ah, oh, Judah, from being torn, my son, you will rise. I mean, this is all about Jesus. Right here in the end of Genesis, we discover that the cross has been foretold. God's plan all along was to do this and to make it right. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that nuts? Oh, I love it. So then we read verse 10. 
The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. So a scepter and the ruler's staff, these are all things about ruling, about authority, about kingship. And we read here that, that Judah, he, they're the, the tribe that the kings will come from, and they will hold on to this staff, this scepter, this ruler's stick. They will be in charge until he to whom it belongs shall come. He is singular. We're no longer talking about the tribe. We're talking about a one. A one who will come and who will reign and who will rule and who will bring justice and bring the kingdom of God. We're talking about Jesus, the one who will come. He will come. And verse 11 goes on. Oh, no, let's pull this line from verse 10. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. Oh, man, the obedience of the nation. When he comes, when the one who we're prophesying about comes to be king, the nations will be obedient to him. In the Hebrew, the word nations is the word goy. It's also the Hebrew word that gets translated as Gentiles. So, so when he comes, the one whose body will be torn and who will rise again and who will become the ruler, even the Gentiles, even the non-Jewish people will be obedient to him. They will come to him and live under his rule and his reign. Boom. Verse 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Um, turn with me to, to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah has a, prophe a prophecy about the coming king of Israel. And in chapter 9, verse 9, he says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Oh, man, how did Jesus ride into Jerusalem just before he was to be crucified? On a donkey! On a donkey! Oh, right back here in Genesis 49, he will tether his donkey to the vine. This king whose body will be torn but will rise again, who will be the ruler from the line of Judah, he will ride in on a donkey. Wow. All of this back here in Genesis chapter 49. Huh. I also love it because donkey, I don't know if you remember, we talked about this when we talked about um, Ishmael because he gets called a, a wild donkey. But the word donkey in the Hebrew, it, it, this word that's used here, it literally means a young, newly broke kind of donkey. So it's, the idea is that like it's not fully trained. All right, It's a little bit wild, a little bit kind of out there. And we read here that Jesus is going to, or Judah, or Jesus, oh, is going to take this wild donkey and is going to tether it to the choicest vine. And, and in the scriptures, the vine, the vine is often used uh, to talk about and to be symbolic of, figuratively symbolic of Israel, the people of God. So, so Judah or Jesus is going to take this wild donkey, this untamed kind of whatever, and bring it and tame it and tie it to the people of God. That's us. We're the, we're the wild donkey, by the way. And in Jesus, he brings our life into the people of God. The New Testament says this, that we have been grafted on. We have been grafted on. That's how the New Testament phrases it. Um, also, some more things on, on the uh, verse 11. We see that he will wash his garments in wine. I love this. The word garment in the Hebrew, the root word that is used there, it literally means a wife. So I know that we, um, 
we don't think like this now, okay, or with equal rights and all of that kind of thing and equality. Uh, but back then, the idea was this, that, that the wife, that the word garment meant a wife because a husband would adorn himself with his beautiful wife. Do, do you see that? Like to clothe himself with her, to be adorned with her. And so the word here is basically saying that he's going to wash his wife. He's going to wash his wife with wine. Wow. He's going to wash his bride with wine. Oh, that's us. The bride of Christ. I love it. And, and then it says his robes, in the, just in case you didn't catch that the wine is talking about the blood of Christ, then his robes, he says, in the blood of grapes. So let's put the word out there just in case you didn't spot what we're talking about, but we are talking about the blood of Christ, right? This is it. He's saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to wash you in the blood. I love it as well because the word robe that gets used there, it literally means a, a covering, which is the meaning of the word atonement. I'm going to atone for you. I'm going to cover you with my blood. I'm going to make this right. We're going to wash all this. How are we going to do it? Well, because I'm going to come as the king and my body's going to be torn, but then I'm going to, I'm going to be raised up. Oh, isn't this amazing? What happens? We see here in Genesis 49, the whole of the gospel being foretold. Not just the big narrative in the life of Joseph, but the detail of how he's going to do it and what he's going to do. We can trust in this because now we know it's been fulfilled in Jesus, but it was prophesied and promised all that time ago. And God did it. He did it. I love in chapter 49 as well. Um, once Judah gets mentioned, everything changes. Everything changes. So the first two sons that get mentioned, the blessing sounds more like a curse than a blessing, right? You're like, don't want to be Reuben, don't want to be Simeon, and don't want to be Levi, because that did not sound good. But then Judah comes along, boom, and everything else after that is different. And, and we haven't got time to unpack all of the sons, so I'm just going to take the next two, okay? We're going to talk about the next two real briefly. Um, and I, I want to show you this because in these two, you'll see the pattern, but you'll also see the reason we trip up and don't see how everything changes. But everything changes when Judah, the lion of Judah, shows up uh, and actually lives out what it means to be the image of his father. So we get onto Zebulun in verse 13, and we read there that Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Now, there's a problem with this. If you're a biblical scholar and you read this, or you're a historian and you read this, you suddenly think, ah, uh, the Bible's wrong. Because we know historically uh, that, that Zebulun didn't have a sea border. The tribe of Zebulun, when they settled in the land of Israel, they were inland, nowhere near the sea. Jacob got it wrong. Or did he? Or did he? What is going on here is this. Spot what he says. At the start of chapter 49, he says, I will tell you what will happen. What will happen. And we read here that Zebulun will live by the seashore and will become. Not they already are, but eventually they will. When the line of the tribe of Judah comes, everything will look different. What you currently are, how you're currently trapped, what you're currently in, that's going to be extended and it is going to grow and your territory is going to grow and the blessing is going to grow and you're going to be by the sea. And it's not just going to be about you because when the line of the tribe of Judah, when he comes into your life, you're not just going to be blessed, but the people that you encounter are going to be blessed. You're going to become a haven for the ships at sea. Isn't this amazing? See, the presence of the line of the tribe of Judah changes 
everything, not just for you, but for the people around you and for what your life will look like and the blessing it will bring. Everything will be different because of the transforming presence, the transforming rule and reign of the line of the tribe of Judah, which is Jesus. When you let him reign in your life, everything looks different. Then we get on to, to Issachar, and uh, Issachar, it tells us, is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. I want to unpack just real briefly some of the wording here. Um, raw-boned donkey, literally the Hebrew means a, a strong donkey. Okay, that's, that's what it means. If you're thinking, what on earth does raw-boned mean? Uh, not talking about a skinny kind of showing its bones. Actually, it means a, a strong, a boned, a raw, a hard-boned, a, a strong donkey. Okay, so Issachar is a strong donkey. And where it says that um, he's resting uh, among the sheep pens, what that means, literally the word is, is between two burdens. It, that we translate sheep pens. It's a bit of an odd translation. It can be translated sheep pens or cattle pens. It can also be translated um, as um, uh, ash heaps or fireplaces. It basically means two of the same thing. He rests between two of the same thing. And many scholars think that the best translation here is actually that he rests between the saddlebags. The saddlebags. And that makes more sense, right? A donkey between the saddlebags that he's got over him rather than between the sheep pens because what on earth is the donkey doing in the sheep pen? Um, but so actually he's resting between the saddlebags and this makes sense because uh, a donkey is an animal that was used for work. Okay, and if he's got the saddlebags on, then this is all about Zebul um, sorry, Issachar being one that works the land. So, so hang with me here. Go to the next verse, verse 15. And this is where we often trip up and we don't realize that after Judah, everything's about blessing. Because we read verse 15 and we're like, oh, that doesn't sound good either. So it says, when he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. So when we read that in the English, it gives us this idea that Issachar sees how great the land is that he's inherited and he loves it, and he just becomes lazy. And because he becomes lazy, he ends up becoming like uh, a slave under forced labor. And lots of people have interpreted it to mean that, as if the Canaanites kind of it forced him into labor. But that's actually not what's going on here, and it doesn't make sense. Um, and I want to tell you why it doesn't make sense. First up, it doesn't make sense because um, once Judah is mentioned, all of the other brothers get likened to an animal. Okay, and all of the ones that get likened to an animal, theirs is about goodness and blessing, not about uh, negative curses. Okay, the first three, no animals, all the rest of them animals. So it would make sense that if, if Issachar is likened to an animal, this must be a blessing as well, which means we must be reading it wrong. There must be something else going on here. Um, then we notice that the first three with the negative stuff, they're all linked to actual acts of sin that were committed in the book of Genesis. But nowhere in the book of Genesis so far have we read about an actual act of sin that Issachar committed. So again, it doesn't make sense. Why would Issachar be negative when there's nothing else in the book of Genesis that tells us that he did something that was negative to receive this curse? Are you with me? So these two things don't make sense for it to be a curse. It must be a blessing of some sort. And so a number of scholars read this and they look at the Hebrew wording and they say, actually, when we read here forced labor, actually that, that phrase can be translated as reliable worker, reliable worker. And so actually... What it actually translates as is that he, that makes more sense, doesn't it? Because if he's a donkey, a donkey is a reliable worker carrying the saddlebags. 
this is what Issachar is. Issachar sees how good this promised land is, and he commits to working it and doing good with it, which takes us all the way back again to the Genesis blessing. When God created human beings, he didn't say, go lie, go lie down in the garden. He said, yeah, enjoy it. But he said, go forth and multiply. He said, subdue the earth and rule over it. There was always meant to be this sense of working. And so Issachar is doing that. He's like, yes, look at what we've come into. I'm going to step fully into this blessing and promise of God, and I'm going to do something good with it. Like Zebulun becomes a haven for the ships, Issachar becomes one who does something good with the land, the inheritance, the blessing that God has given him. So are you with me on that? Do you see that? So as you track down the rest of the brothers, we're not going to keep going because we're going to run out of time, but as you track down the rest of the brothers, what you see is that once Judah shows up, once the line of the tribe of Judah shows up, everything changes. Everything changes. And there is blessing on blessing on blessing on blessing. Um, once the line of the tribe of Judah shows up, everything turns around. And guys, this is what I want to say to you today. You might be thinking, why is he banging on about all of this stuff? But it's because of this. It's because when Jesus shows up, when the line of the tribe of Judah shows up, when you see what he has done, how his body was torn, but he rose again, and he is the king of kings who rules and brings the kingdom of God. When you choose to submit to him and to worship him as his brothers, in that moment, everything can change for you. Everything can change for you. You can be different. Your borders can be extended. You can know the blessing of God. And you can become a blessing to the world around you. You can step into the inheritance that God has given you and do something good with it to be a blessing to this world. Because Jesus changes everything for us. That's the point of all of this. Can I geek out with you on one more thing? And we're going to come into land on this. Um, let's put this slide up, if that's all right. Uh, I want to talk to you about chiasm. Many of you have heard me talk about this before, uh, sometimes called parallelism. Have we got that slide, Phil? Yep, lovely. Okay. Uh, so Genesis 49 has what we call a chiastic structure. What that means is, is that it's built in a certain way to reveal something. So in English, if we're telling a story or a poem, often we build it up throughout to get to the climax at the end. But in Hebrew, when they write poetry, what they do is they, they hide the meaning in the middle. So the outer things will mirror each other. And then the next bit in will mirror each other. And then the next bit in will mirror each other. And the meaning, the purpose, the point is in the middle. So I want to show you really quickly the chiastic structure of this and how also it reveals something amazing to us. So the beginning and the end, you get the, the, uh, the prologue and the epilogue. You get the bit where Joseph says, come and listen, my sons. And at the end, you get the bit where it says, so Joseph spoke to his sons and told them this. Okay, you get the, the, the prologue and the epilogue, and it uses similar words. The next bit, we get the beginning, we get Leah's sons. So you'll notice as you read through that the sons aren't actually all listed in age order. They've been switched up. So we start with Leah's sons. And at the end, coming in from the other end, at the back end of the, of the uh, chapter, we get Rachel's sons being listed and the blessing of there. So we get, we get Joseph, we get Benjamin. The next bit in, okay, this is where it gets strange. Because Bilhah, I want to say it right, <laughs> Bilhah's sons don't get listed together. They get separated. So we get Bilhah's first son and Bilhah's second son. Bilhah was the slave of Rachel. Okay, so she was one of the people that Jacob slept with to have sons when Leah and Rachel were in this battle to have more children than each other. Okay, so um, we get Bilhah's first son and then Bilhah's second son. And then the last section, 
Boom. We get Zilpah's sons. So Zilpah's son. Zilpah was the servant or the maidservant of Leah. Okay. And so in the middle, we get Zilpah's sons. And Zilpah's sons are Gad and Asher. Why is this important? Why is this important? This is important because Gad and Asher were like the least of all their brothers. They were born not to a true wife, but to a concubine. They were born to a slave woman. And they weren't just born to any slave woman. They were born to the slave woman of Leah, who was the unloved wife. Do you remember that? Jacob loved Rachel, but Leah not so much. And so actually, right at the middle of the blessing are the sons who are least in all their brothers, who are born to a concubine, the one that belonged to the, the unloved wife. And they're the ones that are right in the middle of all of it. And this is what it says about them. It says, Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their hills. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Guys, Gad will not be defeated. What Asher has will be plentiful and rich, so much so that it could be providing for a king. Like, if the least of all of these gets blessed in the blessing of God, then the least of us will receive blessing too. You might feel like the lowest of the low. You might feel like you are failing at every turn. You might feel like the enemy has got you on your knees. You might feel like you have got nothing. You might feel like your connection with God is really weak. You might feel like you are financially struggling or emotionally struggling or struggling in your health. You might feel like the bottom of the pile in this building today. But let me tell you this. The Bible tells you that if you're at the bottom of the pile, you're at the center of his heart. You're at the center of his heart and you're the one that he wants to lift up and you're the one that he wants to tell you that you will not be defeated because the line of the tribe of Judah has the victory and you will not be empty, but you will have rich blessing because everything that is his is yours. Ephesians tells us that we have every good and spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms given to us in Christ Jesus. Every good and spiritual blessing is given to us in Christ Jesus. And so guys, I'm going to land on that. Andy, why don't you come? We're going to worship in a moment, but I, I want to just put that out there for you today. If you feel powerless, if you feel weak, if you feel like you are struggling, then know this. If you choose to make Jesus your king in this place today, if you choose to let the line of the tribe of Judah roar over you, if you choose to worship him, if you choose to come into his way of doing things, when he steps into your life, everything will change. Everything will change and you will not be defeated. If you are feeling like you've got nothing of worth and everything is just empty, if you put your faith in Jesus today, then you need to know that when the line of the tribe of Judah comes into your life, everything will change. And from that point on, every blessing of heaven is yours. That's who he is. And whether you read it in the New Testament or you go all the way back to the Old Testament, the Bible has been telling us the same story over and over and over and over again. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is faithful and he is abundant in love and grace towards you. And he has died and risen again so that you could know life, that you could know blessing, and that you could know him.